good morning. And I'm so glad you're here. This is the last week of Lost in Love. And uh, maybe it's appropriate that for the last week we're talking a little bit about um, when you have the option to end a relationship or when you have the option to walk away. And as a matter of fact, I just want to start by saying that there's no way for me to give a one-size-fits-all talk about the ending of relationships because there's, there's so many different situations and there are often times when there is what we would refer to as maybe a necessary ending in a relationship. Sometimes there are times when it is appropriate for us to say this, we've come to a parting of the ways, and we see that in Scripture. But can we just agree on the fact that a lot of relationships end when they don't have to? Have you noticed that there are a lot of love relationships that shouldn't necessarily end, but they do? And so what I want to do is I want to walk you through a story in the Bible and talk to you about what we learn from this really beautiful love story, about what it means to hang in there, and not only that, but what God can do in our future when we choose uh, not to let go. That's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be going back to a book of the Bible named Ruth. It's kind of a hard book to find. It's only four chapters long. It's sandwiched between some longer books. Um, but we're really just going to kind of walk through the first chapter of this book. If you heard messages previously on Ruth, chances are really good that the messages you heard had to do with the last couple chapters of Ruth. We're only going to focus today on the first chapter because I want, to, I want you to see the story of a young woman who had the chance to walk away and said no. And uh, so we're going to go back to the book of Ruth. And by the way, I was listening to another uh, pastor talk about Ruth here recently. And he said, and I liked what he had to say, he said that Ruth is the chick flick of the Bible. And uh, I think he's probably right about that. Uh, not only is this really a romance story, it's a drama uh, in, in the scriptures. But on top of that, uh, there's over 50% of its dialogue. And, and you know then, of course, that it's, it's a book about ladies, if, if over 50% is dialogue. If it was a guy, if it was about guys, we'd have 2 or 3%. We'd be good with that, right? Um, but this is an incredible story. We're going to start in chapter 1 and verse 1. And just opening up the drama here, the Bible tells us that in those days, uh, the, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. Now, right off the bat, it tells us that this is in the period of the time, uh, period of time when the judges ruled in Israel. Now, you may recall, if you know your Bible, that there was a period of time where Israel worshipped God and God was their king. If you were to ask an Israelite, who is your king? They would say, well, we don't have a human king. Our king is God. Now, they didn't really live up to that a lot, because a lot of times God would say, this is what you need to do, and they wouldn't really follow God, but regardless, they would tell you that God was their king. But there came a time later on when they would say, we want a king like other nations, and there would come a time when God would, would allow them to, to uh, name a king, Saul would become the king of Israel, but there was a period of time between the time that Israel basically said, we're bailing on God, and God's not our king anymore, and when they actually had a human king, and this is what we call the period of the judges, right? And, and the Bible tells us what it was like to live in those days. In Judges 21, 25, by the way, this is the verse that comes right before the book of Ruth. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Does that sound even vaguely familiar? Do you know what it's like? Can you relate to living in a world where there's no strong leadership and everybody just does whatever feels right to them, right? I mean, this is what uh, our story opens up. So we know automatically that it's kind of in a, in a bad setting. And then the Bible also tells us that a famine came on the land. So things were difficult. We don't really struggle so much with this in the United States. But this was a time when just about everybody in the land, for them, eating was just, just, just to be able to have the food to eat was a problem. 
So that's, that is the way the Bible opens the scene. That is the way the setting opens. And then in Ruth 1, the second half of, of verse 1, it says, So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab. And we'll come back to that in a second. Taking his wife and his two sons with him. And the man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Now, names in their culture was, were very important. Names were often given to, to describe the personality traits of a child or, 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 or perhaps there was some physical traits of the child that the name was, was named after. So Elimelech, the name means my God is king, right? My God is king. He was an exception. He was an exception to his culture. There was a time when Israel would say, our God is king, but it wasn't anymore. There was a time when if you would ask somebody from Israel, who's in charge? Our God's in charge, but no more. But Elimelech was an exception to the rule. He was a man who still said, in the middle of the time of the judges, Elimelech still said, my God is king. He was the the kind of strong leader that every woman hopes to marry, a, 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 a spiritual leader in the home, a person who made good choices, even in the middle of a bad environment. Elimelech was a strong man and a follower of God, and his name meant, my God is king. Then Naomi's name meant sweetheart. It meant pleasant. It meant, it meant a gracious woman, right? So you have, you, have, you have this incredible, I mean, you think about this. You, you're talking about a couple who had something going on. If you had a small group, you'd want this couple in your small group. If your church was getting ready to start a marriage mentoring group, you know, situation, you would want them to be the first to sign up to be marriage mentors. Because you had, in the middle of a messed up culture, you have a guy who says, my God is king, and a woman who is gracious and pleasant and sweet. They would have been fun to have been around. And then the Bible tells us that they had two sons. This is really when we first start to get a glimpse of the fact that something might have been difficult for Naomi and Elimelech because of their son's names. Malon and Kilion were the name of their two sons. Malon means sickly, and Kilion means fading fast, right? So can you imagine introductions, you know, to introduce your family? Hi, my name is Elimelech, this is my wife Naomi, and this is my two kids, sickly and fading fast, you know? But the, the truth behind all that is that it's probably pretty possible that from a youngest age, both Malon and Kilion probably had some sort of big health problem. So we know, okay, we've got Elimelech, my God is king, Naomi, pleasant, gracious, sweet, sweetheart. And then we've got these two kids who probably have some health issues, but they're doing okay. Everything is going all right until the famine hits. And by the way, there's a little bit of irony in the fact that there's a famine because they lived in Bethlehem. And we were familiar with Bethlehem because, of course, this is where Jesus was born. So we think of it in those terms. But this was, of course, a long time before that. And they lived in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. Right? Because Bethlehem is in a climate in the Mediterranean where crops grow easily. And so they always were thought of as a place where there was a lot of grain. The crops grew well. And so there was always plenty in Bethlehem. So if you think about this, Naomi and Elimelech, I mean, they, they really do have something going for them for a little while. The marriage is really good. Elimelech, my God is king. Naomi's pleasant. They live in a land that says the house of bread. We've got more than we need. There will always be food to go around. But it is amazing how sometimes when a culture lets go of God, it can hit the wall. And all of a sudden, you've got this couple living in a land that should have plenty that has nothing. So many of us have watched this happen in our culture and we know how quickly a land can lose its blessing when it chooses to do its own thing. And that's what happened in Bethlehem. So there's a famine. But everything is still okay. Naomi says, you know, I can still be pleasant. I'm still, you know, as long as I have Elimelech. Elimelech is strong and he's going to make good decisions and he's a spiritual leader and I can trust him and, and things are going to be okay. But then a, 
her husband makes kind of a weird decision. He decides to move to Moab. He, he, he shows up and he says, Ruth, I think it's time for us to move to Moab. I've heard they have food in Moab. They've got grain in Moab. It's time for us to pack our bags. Gosh, I, w- I wish I didn't have to talk to you about Moab because it's kind of an ugly thing. And, and you know, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. Even though there's a lot of ugliness in life, the Bible doesn't, you know, maintain the stained glass and organ music for us and keep everything in a nice uh, family G-rated level. Sometimes when there's ugly truth, the Bible tells us about it, and the Bible tells us there's some ugly truth behind Moab. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know the story of Abraham and Lot. There was a time when Abraham and Lot were together, traveling together, and their servants were together. But there came a time when there was all this conflict between Abraham's servants and Lot's servants. Abraham said, Lot, it's time for us to split company. You need to um, go one direction, I'll go the other direction. And Lot picked to go live next to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible tells us that when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, right, that God sent a rescue mission in to get Lot out of there. And so in the aftermath of this, Lot is, is there with his daughters. His wife is no longer because she looked back towards Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got Lot and his daughters. There, there's nobody else around them. There's no hope and no potential for Lot's daughters to get married. And so in the most genteel way I can possibly put this, what happened was Lot's daughters wanted to continue the family line on, so they got their dad extremely drunk and ended up having children through him. Now, Lot's oldest daughter's son that happened through that encounter's name was Moab. So this nation, this land, this country was, was based off of this messed up relationship a long time ago. And the Moabites had set themselves up against God's people. They were, they were the enemies, really, of God's people. God had even pronounced a judgment on the Moabites. So it's weird. Elimelech, my God is king, comes to Naomi and says, we need to move to Moab. And if you've ever moved away from home, you know what I'm talking about. And I don't just mean packing your bags and moving away from where you live. I mean packing your bags and moving away from your family, moving away from the place you've grown up in, moving away from the place that you understand the culture and you understand the way people behave and act and you have familiar landmarks and, 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 and it feels like home and you have to pack up and move away. If you've ever done that, you moved away from Wichita. I remember this years ago when Wendy and I first moved away from Wichita, and you move away, and you realize when you get wherever you're going, there are no Dylans here. There's no quick trip. There's no Spangles, right? You think, I'm in a foreign country. Right? Even within the States, you know, I mean, I traveled the other day to California. Even within the States, you go someplace else, and you go, people here are not like the people that I'm used to where I come from. <laughs> it's just different, you know? People respond differently and behave differently. But for Naomi, it was even worse because she was going someplace where the people there did not like her kind of people. They didn't like Jewish people. But Elimelech says, time to pack up and go. And so she said, okay. Elimelech is still a strong decision maker. I can still trust Elimelech. And I don't really want to live in Moab. But if I can have Elimelech with me, it'll be okay. I don't really want to be there and it's going to be difficult. But as long as I have Elimelech, I think we can make it. My kids may be sick and that's really disturbing to me. But, you know, as long as Elimelech is there, I can always lean on him and I can always tell him about my pain. And we can always make it because it's going to be all right as long as we're together. And then we get to Ruth 1 verse 3. And the first three words tell the story. It says, then Elimelech died. Maybe you can relate to what Naomi's going through. Maybe you could say, you know, my life was going just fine. And then I got fired. 
Everything was going fine. I thought our relationship was fine. I thought we were doing okay. And then my spouse cheated on me and left me. Financially, we were making ends meet, and it was going to be all right, and we had a good savings account. And then the market crashed, and everything that we had invested was gone. I tend to think that if you were to talk to Naomi, she could, she could relate to that. She would say, my life was good. I was doing okay. Nothing was perfect, but we were making it work. My kids were sick, but we were taking good care of them. My heart ached for home, but we were making it work in Moab. And then Elimelech died. Oh, I think she kept a brave face on. But on the inside, I think she was shutting down. Felt like things could never be the same. And then as life tends to do, life continued to go on. And her sons grew up. And her sons started dating. And they started bringing gals home to meet mom. Hey, mom, this is Ruth. I want you to meet Ruth. She's, she's really special, mom. I like her an awful lot. Hey, mom, this is Orpah. I, I really think she might be the one. And there's no doubt about the fact that Malon and Kilion, they, they chose exceptional women. You're going to see this in a second. They chose exceptional women to marry, incredible women. And it's probably because Naomi was so incredible, and they had really come to appreciate those qualities about her, and they had found women that had a lot of the same gracious, pleasant qualities that Naomi had. And these were great women, but there had to be something in Naomi's spirit that said, as wonderful as these girls are, they're still Moabites. You go there with Naomi, and you sit there in a wedding when she's watching her son get married, and she says to herself, this isn't the way we did it back home. Oh, it's nice. It's a nice wedding, but it's not like it would have been back home. It's not what I imagined for my boys. It's not what I thought it was going to be like. And as she sits there and she watched her sons exchange vows with these women, she's got to be thinking in her head because God had pronounced a judgment on the people from Moab and God had said, no Moabites will ever be allowed in the temple for 10 more generations. And so you have uh, Naomi as she sits there and watch her sons marry these Moabite women who were great women, but she had to be sitting there and thinking, my grandchildren will never be able to go to church with me. So getting those thoughts, you start to really sense what it had to be like to be Naomi, what her heart was feeling. And for a season, things worked okay. I mean, it wasn't great, but at least she had Malon and Kilian, their two wives. They had a little family going on. And then in Ruth 1.4 it says, but about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilian died. And the, the wording here in the Hebrew looks very much as though they probably both died very close to each other in time. Two more caskets. Two more funerals. No new explanations. No way of figuring out why this is happening. No way of knowing what the future will be. There was no program to take care of widows. There was no state aid, no state-funded help for women in her position. She's got to figure out how are they going to make ends meet, her and these two girls that now she's responsible for. And she is under the gun, under pressure, wounded, and feeling the pain of everything that she's been through. And as she hears her two daughters-in-law weeping, she thinks, how did we get here? How did we get here? Why am I standing here in Moab with two girls who've invested their life in my family, and now I have nothing to give them back. And if you've ever been in that sort of wounded moment where you start to get numb on the inside, you know what it was like to be Naomi. 
And the Bible tells us that there was an incredible exchange between Naomi and these two girls, and that's where we're going to focus the rest of our time on. We go to Ruth 1, verse 5, and it says that when Naomi's husbands and two sons had died, it left Naomi alone with her, without her two sons or her husband. And then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. I told you a second ago, these were exceptional young ladies. Right? I mean, they could have gone home. The minute their husbands died, they could have gone home to mom and dad. Could have. But instead, they stayed with Naomi. They stayed with Naomi until Naomi heard that there was food in the land that she came from. Naomi gets ready to go to the land she came from, and the girls say, we'll go with you. They're exceptional women. So they got started. They packed their bags. They get ready to head back to Israel. But on the way, something hits Naomi. I don't know what it was. She just was thinking it through, and something hit her. And she, it says that, when they set out from the place where she had been living and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah, on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back. Go back. Think about this. They're walking on the way back to Israel. She's going back to her homeland. She's got these girls in tow because they love her so much and they're coming with her. And she turns around to him and says, go back. Go back to your mother's homes. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. And may the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Now, there are a couple of reasons why Naomi might, might have tried to send the girls away. I would like to believe that it's because Naomi realized that when she got home, there was very little prospect of these girls marrying anybody where she was going. Right? Because here's the deal. There was a law in Israel. If a widow, um, if, if there was a brother of the man who had died, the widow would marry the brother of, of her husband. That way the family line could go on. But she knew she had no more sons. There were no more brothers. And she knew that when she brought these Moabite women into Israel, none of the guys there would have any interest in them because they were women from Moab. So she knew that there was very little chance at all that they had any future. And so maybe that was it. And I sure hope it was. But I got to be honest with you. There's a little part of me that doesn't wonder if maybe Naomi was thinking to herself, I can't show up back home with these two girls from Moab. I've, had, I've, I've lived through enough. I've had enough pain. I don't need to hear the whispers. I don't need to hear the gossip. I don't need to hear people talking about how low Elimelech and I sank to move to Moab. I don't need to hear them talking about how they're so much better than us because they stayed in Israel when things got tough. I just don't need it. I just need to go home and dig a hole and crawl in it and hope nobody ever finds me there. So she says, go home. But in Ruth 1.10, both of the girls say, we're not leaving. No, we want to go with you to your people. I told you they were exceptional girls. Both of them said, we're sticking with you. We want to stay with you. But, but Naomi won't take no for an answer. Naomi replied, why? And we're going to come back to that in a minute. She says, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes. For I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Naomi was having a full-blown God crisis. She really felt like everything that she had gone through in her life was as a result of God setting himself up against her. And so she says, go home. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. And Orpah leaves. She goes back to her mom and dad. But the Bible says Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. 
maybe this means more to me than it does to you. I don't know. It's kind of an emotional thought, but have you ever been hugged by someone who refuses to let you go? There's no feeling in the world like being embraced by someone who will not let you go. I remember I was getting ready to take a, a trip to California uh, earlier this year, and my little four-year-old, I remember I was, I was putting her to bed a night, one of the nights previous to the trip, and I told her, I said, I'm getting ready to go. I'm, Daddy's got to go to California, and, and I guess it was the next day or something like that. And she, in, in, in Summer's way, she put her arms around my neck and she squeezed me as tight as she could. And that's pretty impressive because she has pretty strong arm muscles. And she said, I'm not going to let you go. Now, I'll tell you something. I don't care. You, you tell me what you think the greatest feeling in the world is, and I've got you topped with that one. There is nothing like being embraced by someone who will not let you go. But even in the middle of this, this tells you how wounded Naomi was. Even as Ruth is clinging to her and will not let her go, she says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, and you should do the same. Oh, when you listen to a wounded person, you've got to be careful to what you hear. Because a wounded person speaks through the lens of their woundedness. A wounded person, everything they say comes through the filter of their woundedness. So they'll say things that don't make sense. And sometimes they'll say things that actually have the potential. If you were to follow what they said, it would actually hurt you. And Ruth knows this. She, the, God, the God that her people worship back in Moab is a God named Chemosh. And Chemosh, is, is, is the Chemosh worship is messed up. And one of the things that they do in Chemosh worship is they actually will offer children as burnt sacrifices to their God. Ruth understood that. She knew what the God of her people was. I mean, even the king of Moab would later sacrifice his firstborn son that would have been the king if he'd grown up, would sacrifice his firstborn son to Chemosh. It was messed up. But Naomi said, go back to your gods. Why? Because Naomi was having a full-blown God crisis. God has raised his fist against me. So I'm going to go sort things out with my God, and now you go home and sort things out with your God. Oh, be careful what, when you listen to a wounded person. The key is to hear the heart of a wounded person, but not to put the words into place. If, if Ruth had listened to the words, she, she might have gone back and lost all of her destiny. But there was something in her heart that connected with Naomi's heart. Think about what it had to be like to be Ruth. As she hangs on to her mother-in-law and says, I don't want to leave you. And her mother-in-law says, no, no, no. Three times her mother-in-law says, go back home. Make no mistake. The decision of whether to stay or to go is a big decision. Big, big, big. Because the thing about it is, Orpah did what Ruth, or what Naomi told her to do. Orpah walked away, like Naomi said, for her to walk away. Can I tell you something? Look through the pages of your Bible and look for another mention of Orpah. You won't find it. But if you want to see Ruth again, if you want to see the woman who refused to leave, if you want to see the woman who said, I won't leave you, just open your New Testament to the first page. Chapter 1, Matthew. Genealogy of Jesus Christ, the family tree of the Savior. You won't find many women listed there, but one of the women you will find is Ruth. See, there is a moment of destiny at which you will have the opportunity to either stay or walk away. But it's very key to understand whether or not leaving, turning loose, letting go, leaving the embrace of that person, choosing to say, okay, I will walk away from you. It's very important to know whether or not in your arms you are holding your destiny. 
Because Ruth was saying, Naomi, no matter what you say to me, you can say a lot of things to me, Naomi, but no matter what you say to me, I believe that in my arms, as I hold you in my arms, I am holding my destiny. And she was right about that. In verse 16, and maybe you had this in your wedding. I know a lot of people have this in their wedding ceremonies. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked me, think about this. Naomi's been gone for over 10 years. They're excited to see her. So is this really pleasant? Is this really sweetheart? Is she coming home? Don't call me Naomi, she says. Don't call me sweetheart. Don't call me pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. She's in a God crisis. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? See, that is the thing about loving a wounded person. That is the thing about not letting go is recognizing that you are going to be challenged in that. See, the thing about it was Naomi was broken. But Ruth said, I don't care if you're broken, I'm not letting go. Naomi was experiencing a full-on God crisis. And, and, and Ruth said, I don't care if you're experiencing a God crisis, I'm not going to let you go. Naomi said, don't call me pleasant anymore because I'm not a pleasant woman. I want you to call me bitter old woman because that's exactly what I am. And Ruth said, I don't care, I'm still not letting go. Because I believe as I hold you in my arms that I'm holding my destiny. How could she do that? How, 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 how do you make a decision to stay when someone says go? How do, you, how do you make a decision to be around when the other person says, I would rather put distance between us? How, how do you cope when you love somebody who's so wounded that you don't even feel like you're really even able to talk to them because they're kind of checking out on you? Here's the thing. The thing is this. Ruth had come to know the God of Naomi and Elimelech. She'd come to know what God's love really was about. See, she had worshiped a God who gave nothing back. She had, seen God, she had seen people sacrifice their kids. She had seen people do all sorts of worship, weird, crazy worship things to Chemosh. And she watched Chemosh do nothing for her people. And now she was in a relationship with a God who gave her everything. She was in a relationship with a God who loved her unconditionally and cared for her unconditionally. And Ruth had learned what it was like to be held in the embrace of a God who says, I don't care what you do, I'm not going to let you go. And there's something about a person who really gets it, and I mean really gets it, and it sinks down into their ability to think and understand that God has put his arms around me and there, is nothing that will ever let, there was nothing that will ever make him let me go, that then that person says, you know what, I can do that for somebody else. I can do that for you. If God can do that for me, I can do that for you. But make no mistake about it, there is no other explanation for it than the love of God. To stay when you've been given a printed invitation to leave. There's a verse in Romans. It's one of my favorite verses. I do a lot of relationship coaching. And one of my very favorite verses in Romans. So if you don't have this underlined, it might be one to underline in your Bible. It's Romans 15, 13. It has a lot to do with how we bless others in relationships. And it says this. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Now, there's, there's two words I want you to pay attention to. The first one I skipped over kind of quickly. I pray that God, the what? The source of hope will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. And this is the other word I want you to look at. Then you will do what? 
overflow. God is the source, then you will overflow with the confident hope that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's the thing. This is what I want you to get. In so many relationships, we believe our job is to produce. We make ourselves the source. I'm the source. I've got to produce forgiveness. I've got to produce love. I've got to produce peace. I've got to produce grace. I've got to produce all these things so the people in my life will realize that I am worth being in a relationship with. But can I tell you, if you do that, you will always at some point run dry. There is absolutely no exception to that rule because you do not have everything that another person needs. See, what God is saying is, God is saying, if you're my child, you have to understand I am the source. I'm the one who has what you need. I'm the one who has what your spouse needs. I'm the one who has what your kids need. So if you try to provide it and you're not plugged into the source, if you're not plugged into God, you will not be able to provide what you need. You will run dry. That's exactly what happened to Naomi. She was pleasant. She was giving. She gave everything she had. She produced, 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 produced. And eventually she ran dry and said, what has happened to me? What has happened to her is she was in a full-blown God crisis and she was no longer plugged into the source. What makes a Ruth a Ruth is that she knew the God who loved her and she was able to overflow that love onto somebody else. How do you hold on when someone says walk away? You just be a conduit. You just be something that overflows. Don't try to be the source. If you try to be the source, you'll burn out. You'll walk away. You'll lose your destiny. You hang in there and you allow God to be the source. There's a story of a man named George Matheson. George was engaged to be married to a very beautiful woman. He was, uh, it was in Scotland. He was, he was uh, uh, a noted scholar. He was an exceptional student. His life really was looking up. But not too long before he was supposed to get married, he started having problems with his eyesight. And he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you're going to lose your vision. You're going to become blind. So he went and he told his fiance, he said, I can't believe this. It turns out I'm losing my eyesight. And she turned to him and said, I don't think I can spend the rest of my life with a blind man. And so she dumped him. So he did progressively lose his eyesight. As, as a matter of fact, he was studying in seminary. He went to seminary, and as he was studying, he lost his eyesight. And his sister came and picked up the slack for him in his life. When she couldn't read, she read to him. When, she, when he couldn't write, she wrote for him. She was his rock. She was his right hand. And she, it, was, it was her her kindness and graciousness to him that allowed him to finish seminary. And eventually he became a pastor of a church in Scotland, preaching to over 1,500 people a week. And at the time that was unheard of. But his sister fell in love and told him, I'm getting married and I'm not going to be able to be around as much. He understood, of course, but it was just another loss. And the night of her wedding, and I don't I guess maybe it was by mistake, but the night of her wedding, no one picked him up to take him to the wedding. His family went to the wedding, and he was left alone at home. And in his own personal world of darkness, he felt all the loss, the loss of his vision, the loss of the potential of a marriage, the loss of his sister, and now even perhaps the loss of his pastorate. But as he sat there, and he would say later on, he said he just felt this incredible sense that even though he had had to let go of so many things in life, that he felt, I was so impressed with the fact that God's love will never let me go. And he sat down, and in five minutes, he said, he wrote this poem that became a hymn that later has become a mainstay for Christians who have gone through the same sorts of pain. He says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer and fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze 
its day may brighter, fairer be. And then I love this verse. O joy, that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. I love those words, O joy that seekest me through pain. That was what Ruth was doing for Naomi. It was God's love through Ruth, overflowing through Ruth, that it was God's love seeking Naomi through pain. Naomi thought she was in a full-blown God crisis, but God was in the process of seeking her, and he he was seeking her through Ruth. He was getting to Naomi's heart through Ruth. He was overflowing his love through Ruth, and Ruth had been through her own pain. Ruth said, I'm not letting go. And the last thing I want you to look at is I want you to look at the fact that Ruth said, I'm not giving up. See, there's a powerful life attribute of a person who says, just because I don't see how the future can be better doesn't mean that the future can't be better. Is not that what the Bible calls faith? We go to Hebrews 11 and 12. That's what the Bible's telling us about. The Bible says faith is the evidence of things that we can't see. It is, it is the future that we cannot yet put our arms around. It is the future that we cannot yet explain or write down because we haven't seen it yet, but it is the belief that that future will be there. And what was so huge about Ruth saying, I'm not going to go back to my mom and dad, and I'm not going to go back to Moab because my future is not there. It is the fact that she had a faith and a trust in her heart that God had a future for her down the road that she could not yet see. That's where Naomi was struggling because when we read in verse 11, Naomi says, why? Why should you go on with me? And she goes into this elaborate explanation. I can't marry again tonight. I can't have sons for you tonight. I can't provide husbands for you. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't produce. I told you I have nothing left to offer. I got nothing to put on the table. And what you are hearing is the words of a person who says, I have to see the future to believe it could exist. I would need to see it. I would need to be able to know for sure that I could provide a future for you. But there's something in Ruth's heart that says, that's, that's not the God that I was introduced to. That's not the God that you introduced me to. That's not the God that I serve. After all, Naomi, didn't you tell me, didn't you tell me that your God parted the waters of the Red Sea for the people to walk across? Didn't, didn't you tell me all these things that God had done for his people? And you think that just because you can't get married and provide a new husband for me tonight, that God can't do something? God can do anything. I can hold on. I trust God. By the way, that was a worthwhile decision to trust because the Bible tells us, and I told you we were only focusing on chapter 1, but I encourage you to go home and read the rest of the story. This is one of the great love stories of the Bible. Ruth does go home with Naomi. When Ruth gets home with Naomi, she has a chance meeting with a man named Boaz. Boaz is the owner of the field that Ruth goes to glean just little bits of grain from, and yet Boaz is the owner of the field. And God arranges this chance meeting. And by the way, this is when Naomi springs back to life. As soon as Naomi understands what's going on, she becomes the matchmaker of, of, you know, of the year and gets these two people together, right? Boaz and Ruth, it was, a, it was perhaps one of the most beautiful love stories in the Bible. And Boaz and Ruth would get married and they would have a son who would become the grandfather of King David. And then King David was, of course, in the direct family line of Jesus Christ. Man, there's something about, an, there's just something about that personal attribute about a person that says, I don't have to see the future today. I'm going I'm to hold on. I'm not going to let you go because I don't need you to tell me exactly how this is going to work right now. 
because the future is bright. Ruth said, don't ask me to leave you and don't ask me to turn back. She actually separated those two things out. Don't ask me to leave. Don't ask me to turn back. Why did Ruth say don't ask me to turn back? Because she knew, how, she knew what the alternative looked like. She'd been there. She'd done Chemosh worship. She'd been with her family. She knew what that was like. And she said, look, the alternative is not as attractive as you think it is. And that's a really important thing for us to remember. Some of us are in marriages where we get a little bit too comfortable using the D word when we get in a fight. And then some of us, we put it in code. We don't actually say the word divorce. We say, if you don't like it, you know what you can do, right? So I'll give you a little golf clap. Good, you didn't actually say the D word, but we know, what we're, we know what's being talked about. And we say, you might as well just leave. Some of us need to talk to the spouse who says, you might as well just leave. Or talk to the spouse who says, maybe you should just file then. And you tell that spouse, listen, the alternative is not as exciting as you think it is. The alternative is not as good as you think it is. The bottom line is God can do anything with this relationship, so let's put that word in the drawer and never pull it out again. And let's look to the future because God can do something. There's a destiny here at stake. I told you a moment ago that the way that we love others this way is because we've experienced the love of Christ. And I told you in the beginning of this message, I said, I can't give you a one-size-fits-all. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to relationships. But before you check out on somebody, before you allow yourself to make that decision, I want you to go back and visit the scene of the cross and look at Jesus as he's nailed to that tree with nails through his hands, nails through his feet, and he's hanging there. And do you know what the message of that cross is? The message is if it takes this to hold on to you and never let go, it is not too much. And I don't need you to guarantee that you will never mess up. I don't need you to guarantee that you will never make a mistake. I don't need you to guarantee that you will be perfect. I just want you to understand that when you see me hanging here for you, it is the, it is the message of my embrace that says, if you will accept me, I will never let go of you. Because a destiny is at stake. See, God could have said to me, Jonathan, I would have died for you, but you're too screwed up. I would have sacrificed my life for you, but you were just a little bit too difficult to your wife. You were a little bit too difficult to your kids. You were, you were not quite a good enough employee. You were not quite good enough at following all of my rules. So because you didn't quite live up to what I wanted you to do, I'm, I, I just decided that I'm not going to provide forgiveness for you. I'm not going to die on the cross for you, but that is not the God that I serve. The God that I serve said, Jonathan, you haven't even been born yet, and here's a blank check. Here is a blank check. This is how bad I want to be in a relationship with you because a destiny is at stake. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you loved us, that you have loved us unconditionally, that you will never, ever let us go, and that you have provided for us a destiny. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you would say, you know what, I believe what you just said. I believe God has died to provide a destiny for me, and yet I've never made a connection with God. How would I do that? Well, here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross, he made payment for everything you've ever done wrong. But he's a gentleman, and he won't force his forgiveness on you. You have to accept it. So in a second, I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer, and they just call out to Jesus. And, and if you hear these words, and they really mirror what your heart feels, you can say this silently in your head to God. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things, and I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. Thank you for never letting me go. I trust you. 
in Jesus' name. Now, would everyone look this way? Everyone in the room. If any, if any of you just prayed that prayer, we're so excited for you. We want to do something for you. We put together a packet of materials. Looks like this. If I can get it out here, has a booklet in it, a DVD. We just want to give it to you. So you got that talk to us card when you walked in. You can fill it out. Check the box that says "I prayed to receive Christ." Take that back to the guest services, and they'll give you that packet. Thank you so much for being here for Lost in Love. Next week we start living on Mars.